and This is the converted next man, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Messian podcast. Normally, the audio would be fading a little bit harder, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Uh, this is the winter meetings edition wrap-up of a Messian podcast, and we're so very thankful to have all of you here. I am joined... My name is Sam Maxwell, of course, and I am joined by Mr. Michael Collin of Bensonhurst. What's going on, Mike? What's going on, buddy? Here, hanging out, chilling. So I, let's just get right into it. Why don't we start with you? I mean, it's been an eventful week. We, you know, we uh, there were a lot of a lot of trade rumors. Uh, Noah Syndergaard going to Yankees in a three-team deal with JT Realmuto coming back. Rosario has been tossed around as a name. Uh, clearly the Marlins are not going to want to just give JT Real Mutu away, but, you know, there was a lot of it, – it, it, that Mets fan base kind of seems like, like they think there was action, but they also think it's going to be more of the same. Get right into it, buddy. Negotiations are funny. You know, you always you, – you always try to, you know, rip off the other guy, and you always – if you're the other team, you always ask for too much. And then the negotiations start, and somewhere in the middle they reach a compromise. Uh, so I think we're at the extreme ends of this, you know, uh, the beginnings of what appear to be negotiations. I don't know. We can't even call it that. Uh, but I do think the Marlins need to come down from their price. With regard to the Mets, uh, it's my understanding they're asking for Conforto and Nimmo and Prospect. Uh, and that, to me, is just a little bit, absurd, you know, but it's okay to ask. It's okay to ask. Like I said, you always shoot high and if you're the other team, you always try to shoot low, so. Well, I mean, you know, the uh, the Mariners, another M team, they were asking for some prospects out of the Mets, and they seem to get that with the uh, last deal that, that was done, the Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz. They got both uh, some major league talent back, but they also got some prospects for for you, So we do have an understanding. Now, mind you, I think the people that are being discussed have a higher, are higher on the totem pole of the Mets right now, prospect wise, as well as, you know, with somebody like Rosario, Major League Baseball wise. Um, but there, there's clearly a willingness on Brody's part to make the deal when the deal needs to be had. So do you think he might make, make some con- consolations here? You know what? That that's a uh, that's a loaded question because I could take this in so many different ways. Uh, you know, player-wise, yeah, it, it appears he has a short-term plan and a long-term plan. And quite frankly, I don't mind parting uh, with prospects at this moment in time, only because of the background work that uh, Van Wagenen is is performing with with. with particular hires, particularly, you know, uh, former Red Sox uh, personnel. With regards to the future, it's being addressed, and, and, you know, that'll work itself out over the coming years. So we have this win-now mentality, and actually I'm, I'm quite agreeable to parting with talent if, in fact, the, these new guys behind the scenes are going to dramatically improve our minor league situation. Uh, what, 
two weeks ago at this point, they hired Elaine Barrett away from the Red Sox uh, to work in uh, as VP of uh, player personnel, etc. And most recently, they hired from the Red Sox Jared Banner uh, to work in a player development capacity. Uh, and they also hired away uh, the Pawtucket's Red Sox AAA affiliate, uh, their manager, uh, to fill the AA manager in Binghamton's role for the Mets. So I, I like all the things that are being done in the background, and, of course, Omar and I is a part of that as well. So, you know, the future is being handled one way, being handled another. And I'll just reiterate, uh, outside, you know, of, of the obvious, I don't have a problem parting with Rosario in a package. I don't have a problem with parting with Nimmo in a package. But I'm not parting, or I don't feel the Mets should part or even entertain uh, conversations regarding Conforto. Yeah, so Conforto is completely off limits uh, for you, but in the the right situation, you would trade Rosario. Uh, yeah, I, I would. I would. Uh, because maybe, you know, Jimenez is on maybe a year off. You know, there, there's things we can do. There's risks you can take in the short term. Uh, if you're going to go all in, you got to go all in. You know what? I'll refer to... Twitter for a second, you know, the Mets account put up a tweet on the 11th. We will be fearless and relentless in our pursuit of greatness. Now, you know, many times you and I interpreted this as selling hope. And and to a large extent, you know, this offseason is no different. Uh, BBW is still working within the parameters set by the Wilpons and, and Saul Cat. He's just packaging it differently to fans. He's more energetic. He's smiling. He's handsome. He seems uh, a lot more uh, vibrant, and, and and he brings a certain fearlessness to the general manager's office versus Sandy Alderson, you know, who was up there in age and somewhat uh, more calm in his approach and more methodical in his approach. But you know, in the background, uh, he's still working under the same parameters. He's just selling it to us differently. He also isn't accusing any reporters of uh, vying for a job and sabotaging the uh, the front office. Oh, remember that uh, one? <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, that I, I, it's a really random digression for me, and and I think it it brings up one that. Omar Minaya is perfect in the role he currently stands, not having to talk to the press that much. But right. two, um, it just it, it it I I think we celebrated an anniversary, obviously because it was the, it was the ten year anniversary recently, and so the clip popped up from time to time on Twitter, and it, it, it's it's if you haven't watched it in a while, it's fascinating stuff, Mike. It is just it's real. You, you can't believe the train wreck that you're watching in front of you. It's, it's remarkable yeah. to me. It's absolutely remarkable. I, I, and like Adam, Adam Rubin sitting there with, with a dumbfounded look on his face. But anyway, I digress uh, about that. Um, I, I, you brought up when you were talking about the front office uh, moves that were made, the things going on behind the scenes. It also reminded me that there's been some coaching moves. And one, I think that we have not talked about since 
the um, uh, since it was made, and that's Chili Davis as, as the uh, the Mets hitting coach. The more I look, besides the fact that I remember Chili Davis from my Yankee fan days, and I really enjoyed watching Chili Davis. He was one of those players that that were were extremely important to those '90s Yankees teams. But just like so many players on that team, flew under the radar when it came to the overall major league. Uh, acclimates and and I've just I've always liked the way he uh, he approaches uh, uh, hitting at the plate and then I was looking at at who he's resided over as hitting coach recently and there's this is the more I think about it the more you look at at what his track record is this is an excellent hire he's got a good resume Chili Davis has a good resume as a hitting coach I remember him as a player uh, he was a good player, but he he has a he has a very he has a great understanding of the moment and how batters should mentally pre- be prepared in the batter's box uh, in for for given situations. Uh, I think this is a great hire. He's got a great resume behind him. And some of the the decks have been shuffled around uh, around him. Um, I'm trying to pull yeah. up some of his. Numbers for anybody who hasn't seen what he's done as a hitting coach. Um, here we go. I'll take a look at well, his. When, but you know, know, when he was his, when he was with the Yankees, they were still preaching that you know go deep into the count, make them throw a lot of pitches, get that starting pitcher out of the game by the fifth if you can, uh, and, and then once you dip into the bullpen, that's when you do your damage. Uh, that's that was the Yankees' philosophy when he was their hitting coach. You know, but that's an organizational thing. Uh, but he bought into it and he taught it well. But like I said, he has a great now, understanding um, of the moment. I'm I'm just um, <laughs> uh, you know, having typed in Chili Davis and seeing all the most recent news. Uh, there's also, of course, since he did get fired from the Cubs job, uh, there's some quotes uh, coming out from from that time. And, uh, you know, I see this one headline that said he was blaming millennial players after losing jobs as Cubs hitting coach. And let's uh, <laughs> cut a little forward. Uh, I, I Davis don't doubt that. Communicating I with, don't doubt that happened. Right? Well, let's see. Davis said communicating with millennial players was difficult when he was working with the Cubs, according to Gordon Wittenmeyer of the Chicago Tribune. Quote, I guess I need to make some adjustments in the way I deliver my message to millennial players now. I need to make those adjustments for the next job I get, if there is one. Um, <laughs> that wasn't the only veiled shot he took at the Cubs, the Cubs youngsters. Davis also said he would be more careful about knowing the personnel in the clubhouse before he takes his next job. And this is interesting, you know, since now he does have another job and it's with the New York Mets. Quote, I yeah, learned a lot this so- year, he added. I learned that the next situation I get in before I say yes to a job, I need to make sure I know the personnel I'll be dealing with in the clubhouse. I hope the next guy connects better with the players because I felt that there were multiple players there I didn't connect with. It wasn't that I didn't try. It just wasn't there. I certainly see that happening. Uh, You know, but the the, the Cubs right now are a frustrated organization. So things like that happen in, in a conditioned environment like theirs. You know, they fell off the cliff. Uh, no, that's that's incorrect to say. But, you know, they dropped off since winning the World Series, and they'd like to get back, and they're just frustrated. That's all. And, and things like that manifest. Uh, but I think Chili Davis' uh, resume speaks for itself. If, if he didn't get along with some of the Cubs, so be it. Uh, and you know what? Being self-aware is, is only going to help him. If he realizes a mistake and he can do something about it, more power to him. 
uh, that's great personal self-observation as far as I'm concerned. And if it didn't work out, it didn't work out in Chicago. It happens like that sometimes. You know, when you're a coach in MLB, uh, the day you get hired, the clock is ticking till the day you get fired. You know, nobody has jobs for life in, in MLB, and especially coaches, first-base coaches, third-base coaches, bench coaches, bullpen coaches. Uh, you know, you have a limited life, uh, shelf life. So it is what it is. I wouldn't put, I wouldn't pay too much mind to that. No, I agree, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of self-reflection, uh, and uh, we shall see how it adapts to the New York Mets. Um, let, let, you know, Syndergaard was out there as as part of the uh, um, the, the, the rumors going going around, and. Let's let's get let's get deep into the way all of this works. And obviously, you know, you you mentioned Rosario. You mentioned how you, Conforto's really the the untouchable one for you. Um, but what about Syndergaard? And in regards to the rumor about the three-way trade, for one thing, I, uh, I I appreciated what I saw coming back from the Yankees, as far as I'm concerned, because I do like um, Torres. Uh, but just imagining. Noah Syndergaard in those pinstripes, and I know he'd probably have to get a Jacob Degrom crew cut going on the second he gets there with those those uh, uh, blonde locks of his. I, I it was just it's kind of I don't want to say it makes me throw up in my mouth, but <laughs> it's not a happy it's not a happy image, Mike. Uh, no, and you know. I'm still trying to figure out their overwhelming motivation to move him unless they know something we don't. Well, it, it is weird. At this point, I'm not so sure moving him is the right thing to do prior to this administration in the direction we were formerly going. Perhaps the condition was more suited to a transaction, but now I'm not so sure. And like I said, I'm still trying to figure out this overwhelming motivation to trade Syndergaard. Uh, because he's controllable, and, and you know he's younger than Degrom, and yet they seem to be, you know, in a rush to give him an extension and, and throw money at him when they really don't have to. So I, I'm, I'm having trouble, you know, getting a grasp of motivation in either scenario. But I don't think moving Syndergaard is a, is a good idea. Besides that, uh, now you're putting too much on your plate. You know, are you going to concentrate on a real a real Mudo transaction or are you going to concentrate on a Syndergaard transaction? You bring a third team into the equation, now it becomes overly complicated. Who's getting the better of who? And not to say that any media reaction should dictate your actions, but you know how well that's going to go over. Uh, and the last thing the Wilpons want is adverse reaction from fans. Uh, we know they're paranoid to that kind of thing. So... Perhaps they need to slow it down. There's such a thing as we, we've accused them in the past of, you know, winning the off season, which in the end means nothing. I do believe we're joined by our third partner. Hey, guys. We are joined by our third partner. Hello, Rich. How you doing? Let's get right into it. Um, I want to start with Rosario for you, and then we'll come back around. Uh, in terms of should he be the centerpiece for a real Muto trade? Yeah, you know, you you uh, were focused off offline and on Twitter, or not offline exactly, obviously because of Twitter, but off air 
uh, you were talking about how it, it, it just you were not a fan of Rosario and JT Real Muto in the in the same sentence. So let's let's just dive into it. How come? Well, Rosario, I think, has the potential to be a superstar. Not that Real Muto doesn't. But the problem is you're trading – so you'd be trading one superstar for – one potential superstar for another potential superstar. So as Brody said, you're creating a void by filling another. And I don't know that the team necessarily goes forward in that way. Uh, you're, you're, you're really just kind of spinning your wheels in neutral. And if anything, you're losing a little bit. And we've all been talking about this over the past several years with the Mets, team control. And it's becoming more of a thing in baseball where other teams are talking about it too. But with Rosario, you have five years of control and Real Muto too. So maybe you're going, you know, potential superstar for a guy who's a star with the potential for a superstar, but you're giving up three years of control and you're also, you know, you're also saying to yourself, all right, well, who's the shortstop if you trade Rosario? And they're talking about signing Freddie Galvis. Yes, I realize they have Andres Jimenez in the minor leagues, and, and he might be up in, you know, 2020. But what do you do this year? Do you sign Freddie Galvis? Do you think you're better now because you have Real Muto and Freddie Galvis and you traded away a potential superstar in, in Rosario? I don't know. I, I don't see it as that leap forward. I see it as maybe a slight step forward and possibly maybe more likely neutral. And that's why I'm against it. So I'll loop back over to you, Mike. And this is something that popped in my head, but I, I forgot to, to loop back around to it. Um, if let's say that that is exactly what Brody's thinking, what Rich just mentioned um, is him. Do you think Jimenez is being talked about in being involved in one of these trades? Uh, I should hope so. At this point, I want them utilizing their minor league prospects and transactions. Uh, I think that's the route they should be taking. I want to avoid, invo- I want to avoid, you know, involving Rosario at all at all costs if I if I can. But I'm open to moving him, only because catcher is a much harder position to find quality at. And Real Muto is a quality catcher, both defensively and offensively. I'm impressed by uh, his overall fielding. Uh, I'm impressed with his ability to throw runners out. Last year he threw them out at a 38% clip, and we need that kind of thing. You know, I've been saying it for numerous podcasts that, above all else, I I want a a, a more than quality receiver for this pitching staff. If this is going to be the strength of the team, well, you certainly have to complement it with a good receiver, if not a great receiver. So I, I will take my chances in having to backfield shortstop with this opportunity to get a catcher, which are harder to come by. That's the only reason why I'd entertain a trade involving Rosario. Otherwise, I'm trying to avoid it. If I could package Nimmo uh, and some prospects, I'd even consider parting with Matt, including you know a Nimmo-Matt prospects package or something. But I do think the Marlins need to come down somewhat. And like I said, I think uh, Conforto is a non-issue when it comes to this particular trade, or or it's a deal killer. Call it whichever you will. So, Rich, a lot of people on Twitter that I've been I've been looking through uh, say, "All right, well, if this is the cost, just sign Yasmani Grandal." Now I'm looking at his numbers. He's a career 240 average. I mean, 
68 RBIs. That's I guess in 24 home runs. That's definitely better than we've been getting from the uh, uh, the catcher position, and that is, is his most recent numbers. Uh, what's your take on on the catching position with this, outside of Rosario, Rosario possibly being included? Yeah, I, I think if the Marlins don't drop their price, then I think you have to look elsewhere. So so staying with what what the Mets have, TDA and Ploiecki and Nito is not an option. I mean, all their chips are on the table. They're going for it. Those guys, you're, you're not going to win. Well, I shouldn't say you're not going to win with those guys, but you're making it much more difficult if you try to win with those guys. Um, and so they have to upgrade the catching position. So if the Marlins insist that they have to get, you know, what, what are you hearing? You know, two major league players and prospects. And if they won't come down off of that, then I think it's time. I want no part of Wilson Ramos and his injury history. We've had way too much of that on the Mets. I'd, I'd prefer Grandal, and I'd say, yeah, he's a definite option. Uh, I don't know if you guys, uh, as you guys know, I was in the air most of today, and I don't know if you guys talked about this, but I want to throw something out that I didn't have time to tweet because I was in the air, but I, I had a thought on the plane, and that was that the familiar thing, right, it, it came out of nowhere, and then I started thinking, what if they're talking to the Marlins and maybe they say, well, would you be interested in a Lugo or a Gesellman with a Nimmo? So my point is, maybe the reason this Familia as a setup man popped up like out of fairy dust is perhaps because they might, have, they might be talking to a team or teams about one of their quality relievers who are young and under control like Lugo or Gassam. I just wanted to throw that out. If maybe they're trying to get the Marlins interested in one of those guys. I think that's a very interesting point. Uh, and I think it also brings up another point that these things don't like the stuff that's being talked about doesn't always come to fruition. And a lot of things come to fruition that have not been talked about whatsoever. And so anything could be could be happening, and 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 something. And I'll, I'll go to you, Mike, to not only approach what Rich uh, just uh, mentioned, but also uh, follow up with this one. Remember, like a few years ago, and 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 I'm kind of spacing on exactly what the moves ended up being, but nothing ended up happening at the winter meetings. But apparently, a lot of traction was made uh, at the winter meetings by Sandy Alderson, and then a bunch of moves happened uh, uh, thereafter based off of a lot of conversations that were had at the winter meetings. Maybe you remember some more details about what I'm talking about and what uh, specifically it was. But, you know, that that seems to like as much as, as Met fans t- like to right now in the particular, particular culture that we have right now, they like to come to conclusions at the end of the day about anything. And then look at it, you know, we come to conclusions and then we wake up and see that you're familiar with sign in the middle of the night. So, you know, take, take it wherever you want to go from, from where I just left off uh, regarding what could actually be happening right now. Alderson, his approach to the bullpen over his tenure was to let all the premium guys go and swap somebody up just before spring training at a very cheap price. That was his M.O. Uh, And here BBW is out in front and and somewhat setting a market because there's a lot of relievers still out there. Uh, I'm okay with the deal. I think there's a lot of overreaction, negative reaction, because of the old, you know, been there, done that thing. But uh, he's still only 28 or 29 years old. I think he's an excellent addition 
because we have Diaz, and then you put him with Lugo and Gisellman. And I'll segue. Rich, I hope you're wrong. Boy, I hope you're wrong. I really do. And I, I'm not, I don't think BBW is actually thinking that way because that was one of the first things he said upon taking the job, that this is a, a, a major team strength in these two individuals, Gisellman and Lugo. So I don't think he's looking to move them by all means or by any means. I, I think he's looking to you know, build around those two guys as he did with Diaz and I think with the reacquisition of Familia. Uh, there might be one more acquisition out there, or, or you know, somebody from the minor leagues might surprise us. But I, I do think his intention is to go into the season with these four guys. You know, one pair one day, another pair another day, and then mix and match throughout the week. Uh, at least that's the way I'm reading the tea leaves. Uh, I hope he's not considering trading Gisellman or Lugo. I really don't. Uh, but. Uh, Hey, I, I hope that covers. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, no, no, you definitely touched on everything, and uh, and I'll loop over to Rich right after this and, and give my two cents on it. Um, I know that he's mentioned that he wants to uh, lock down a lefty specialist. I'm not sure whether that means Andrew Miller, uh, but when you do look at like people are like, well, they should have just signed Andrew Miller instead of Yuris Familia because of the walk rate. Well, it's like, well, look at Andrew Miller's walk rate and look at the type of season he just had. Familia, like you said, is younger, and and um, you know, the, the, other people are saying that he's going to be a good mentor to Edwin Diaz, and hopefully that that will be the case as well. But when you're thinking about the fact that he still wants to lock down a lefty specialist, and then you look at locking down a lefty specialist but losing either Gazelman or Lugo or both, um, it it's just it doesn't compute to me as well, just because. When you're talking about the strength of the starting pitching, one of the biggest reasons why we fell apart last year was because we didn't protect those starting pitchers' leads on top of the offense not being all that good. Whenever the offense did give them some leads, it fell apart, generally speaking, uh, um, and really started with when the Nets had a chance to go 12-1, and but it ended up 11-2 and after blowing it to the Nationals. Um, so, Rich, yeah, yeah, what, you know, I, I my – Personal opinion is I, I am with Mike on that, that I hope that's not what's going on. Oh, I hope that's not what's going on, too. But but when you think about it, right, as, as believe me, when you have that coast-to-coast flight, you have a lot of time to think. And I'm thinking that, <laughs> right, I mean, oh, it just seemed – and then just so everybody knows, if not that anybody cares, but the flight was late and couldn't get a gate, all that crap that always happens, just, you know, anyway. But so I had a lot of time to think about this, and I was thinking – you know, Brody clearly wants this guy, right? He And it, we all know that, yes, that ugly thing has started to pop up where he does seem to have sort of a disproportionate interest in the guys his firm used to represent, and that is a bit of a concern. But he wants Real Muto, right? And I think he's he's grappling with a lot of scenarios. You know, the Cindergard thing with the Padres, Cindergard with the Yankees. What can I do to get Real Muto on this team? Because it does make baseball sense to a degree. It, it certainly does. But how do I do this? And so I started thinking, you know, while I love having a very, very deep bullpen, if you ask me right now, would, I, would I'd rather include Rosario, Nimmo, Conforto, or Gesellman or Lugo, not both, Gesellman or Lugo, any one of those four options, 
as the front piece to get Real Muto, I'm going to say I'd rather part with a Lugo or a Gaselman. I don't love the idea at all, but if it's going to take if it's going to take one of those scenarios, I, I do think the Mets are a little bit deeper in the bullpen right now and could probably afford that a little bit more because of the signing of Familia. So maybe you do that and you do a couple of prospects. You give them a good arm, a good controllable arm. They want controllable major league talent. You give them one of those. You throw them a couple of prospects and you get your Real Muto. Again, I, 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 this may just be my brain working overtime, but it does seem as though you know when you make trades, typically what you want to do is trade from your strength. And right now they've got a lot of good arms in that bullpen. Just a thought. And no, it does they... make sense considering that everywhere else we seem to have some, ex- some unexpendable players, or at least that's just how it feels right now. Go ahead, Mike. I, 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 would, uh, I was just going to say that I, I think they need to keep that bullpen intact and just keep adding to it, not subtracting from it. Uh, I will only throw on top of it that I think it's either real mudo or nothing for me personally. I have no interest in Grandal or anybody else for that matter. I'd be willing to go this extra extra step for Real Mudo. He's good defensively, good offensively, good receiver, throws runners out. He's a good player, a good catcher, and he's 27 years old. That's why I would take the extra step for him and him only. No interest in any of the other free agent catchers. None. And therefore, I'd rather do nothing than, you know, do something foolish. I, I don't know. I still think we're a better team with Grandal on there than, than going with Darno and Plovecki again. If you can get him short-term, fine. Because, like I said, there's two plans here, the short-term and the long-term. But if you're going to lock him up for five years, I have zero interest in that. He's 30 years old. If you can get him on a two-year deal, I'm, I'm agreeable with that. But he throws runners out below league average. Just want to throw that out there. And he's led the National League three times in past balls. Figure I'd throw that one out there as well. Real Muto, for me, Real Muto or nothing. It's for me, Real Muto or nothing. He's worth taking the extra step for. Well, I'll tell you guys, I keep refreshing Twitter, and all I see is some stupid Nelson Cruz uh, uh, rumors. Which is just not what I'm liking, what I want to see right now. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, there's one one, uh, person was just like, that would be so Mets of them to sign Nelson Cruz five years too late. (laughs) (laughs) It's and, and it's funny that you know now the winter meetings are officially over. The Rule Five draft has had, and I I think uh, that. There was some Rule 5 movement on part of the Mets, and I'll get that uh, popping up right now. But it's just so funny, Rich, how, you know, it's just constantly about refreshing the timeline. And then you see some stupid tweet that goes, breaking, I just had a sandwich. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's fun. It, the winter meetings are very uniquely baseball. And really, we all know what it is. It's a way to market the game in the off season, And it works. You know, it works. It, um, we all get into it. You know, it's doing exactly what the powers that be wanted to do with Mike. You know, going back when you and I were kids, it was always a big thing. And um, 
and, and it, you know, here it is almost Christmas time, and, and we're talking about baseball. That's exactly what the Lords of Baseball want us to be doing. But speaking yeah. of, of the Rule 5 draft, you know, Brody, I, I have little problem with anything Brody's done. I think he's done some great stuff. Like bringing Allard Baird was great. He's brought in, you know, some people to Red Sox organization. I happen to be a big believer in that. I happen to be a big believer in if you could get guys – from a winning organization into your organization, there's something to that. You know, they're a part of that winning culture. They they know how to win, and and I think it's I think everything he's done. You know, the Cano Diaz deal, jury's out, but a lot of the other stuff around the um, around the periphery that he's done, I think it's been great. Now, now speaking of the Rule Five draft, since you brought it up. The Mets grabbed this guy Braxton Lee today, and I remember him. I remember him playing against the Mets. Um, and he had a, he only had 17 major league at bats, but I but I remember some of those were against the Mets. And I remember the the scouting report on him was he's in my mind he's sort of like a Jason Tyner, no power, outstanding speed, outstanding defense, slap hitter. The Mets got him for nothing. Okay, now granted he's not your starting center fielder, he's none of that. But what did Brody do? He found a position that the Mets are very thin at. They're very thin in outfield, both on the major league level and on the minor league level. He went and grabbed this guy who, you know, if you have to trade a Ligaris, which I think they will, by the way, $9 million for Ligaris, I can't say on the field, is probably something Brody's not going to want to tolerate. And there are already rumors that he's shopping him. So obviously you want a, a major league center fielder like a Pollock, but you have to have depth. And in an emergency, if you have to reach down and grab this guy for a couple of weeks, again, kudos to Brody. Instead of grabbing, you know, some Class A player who's been in Class A ball for four years, he went and got a guy who actually sniffed the major leagues in an, in a position where the Mets need some depth. So I, I just wanted to give him some kudos on that one. Yeah, no, that does sound like like a, a good pick. And I'm looking at uh, some other – there was another one named Kyle Dowdy. Mike, have you read up on Kyle Dowdy at all? Kyle Dowdy? Uh, yeah, they picked him up. Uh, that was the one I was aware of. I wasn't even aware of uh, the gentleman Rich just brought up. But, uh, yeah, Kyle, Kyle – Yeah, neither Kyle, Kyle Dowdy, jeez. Uh, right. He's a right-hander, and uh, they got him from the Indians, uh, from the Indians organization. So uh, I mean, you know, they're, they're talking up, they're talking up his raw stuff. It sounds yeah, like they're they're giving him pitcher. the Sandy Koufax treatment. He's a power pitcher, throws in the, in the nineties, but you know these days who doesn't? So there's a reason why you wind up getting selected in the Rule Five draft. But then again, the Rule Five draft is designed to. Uh, you know, free players up who would otherwise get bogged down in organizations. So it's it's good for him, but, you know, uh, nothing lost. You know, try to strike lightning in a bottle here. Rich, it sounds like, based off of reading the tea leaves here, now it says, quote, and I'm reading, uh, excuse me, guys, I'm reading from uh, Mike Puma's New York Post article about it. Quote, we brought a, a big group of professional scouts down here this week, and we were locked in a room for hours and hours, and to get a consensus, consensus on a guy that we believe has tremendous upside, General Manager Brody Von Wagenen said, and not only helping us now but also going forward. This is a kid who has made huge strides from an analytics standpoint as well as the eyeball test. Now, 
He's citing the 98-mile-per-hour uh, fastball as two factors that intrigue the Mets. But, he, you know, they're talking about uh, – I guess, yeah, he, he would, Dowdy would be an option in the rotation or bullpen. Uh, Corey Oswald finished last season as a six-man for the Mets rotation behind Jason, Jacob deGrom, Zach Wheeler, Noah Syndergaard, Steven Matz, and Jason Vargas. And it's nice to not see Matt Harvey's name there anymore. Um, <clears throat> 9 and 12 with a 5.15 ERA with 120 strikeouts and 124 innings for double-A and triple-A last season, which it sounds like this kid is going to have to have a lights-out spring training get put in the bullpen, and maybe eventually he'll get some starts here and there. Otherwise, he's going back to the Indians. Right. And when you say Indians, it's the first thing you think about, right? He obviously has had some contact with Mickey Calloway at some point. So you don't, you don't draft a guy to return him. So I'm sure the Mets will give him every opportunity in spring training. But you're right, Sam. I mean, you know, here's a guy who's got a lot to prove. Clearly has a live arm. Clearly can you know miss some bats. He he's gonna have a he's gonna have a showcase in spring training. See what he could do. But there's nothing wrong with that. You know, again, I know you didn't say there was, but my point is, all these things Brody is doing, Brody and team, all all these things that they're doing, it just seems infinitely logical to me. You know, they're going out and getting guys with upside. That they're even if it's a non-sexy move, they're they're going at areas that the team clearly has a need. It just seems like I, I just love it. I love the aggressive approach. It seems logical. It it does. It seems like they've identified where the holes are and they're trying to plug them. And I think we all know they're trying to plug them without adding much payroll. But so far, the moves they're making, you know, it, it seems to make sense. And um, and I don't know. It, I think it's going to be a fun season. I really do. I agree. I mean, you know, we were we were singing the praises of where they were uh, at the tail end of last season, you know, for a reason. We we liked what we saw, and it's just, you know, we always say it's always just one month that just destroys the, the potential of this team. Um, and I was looking at who they protected, Mike. Uh, Nimmo, of course, Seth Lugo, Robert Gazelman, but then there's this one guy, uh, right-hander named Jeff Walters. Do you know anything about Jeff Walters protected from the Rule 5 draft? Another power pitcher, I think. Uh, lost touch with him about two years and ago. Here we, and here and here we are. Well, let's get back to him then. It's an unranked reliever posting uh, 245 ERA over three levels upon returning from Tommy John surgery yeah. in June. Now, it, you know, we, we, keep, we keep going back to uh, um, the bullpen, but it sounds like, you know, we, let, let's remember, none of us knew who Seth Lugo or Robert Gazelman was in March of 2016. And now we don't want anything touching them from an other major league team perspective. So, so, uh, Rich, you know, um, you're 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 drinking the Kool Aid for sure right now. You're completely on board, and and it sounds, you know, I looking at this move, this it sounds like it's all these unsexy moves, but this could pay dividends at some point. It really can, you know. And I remember Jeff Walters. Uh, I'll bring you guys down memory lane here. Spring training of 2014, Jeff Walters was doing very well. He had been in Double A. 
and he's pitching in spring training, and he's getting guys out, striking people out. I remember I wrote an article about him for the blog that we all three used to write for because I was so impressed with what I was seeing that spring, and lo and behold, what happened, right? Tommy John, and he had a, he had complications, as I recall. So it's been he was he missed a couple of seasons, and um, but yeah, protecting him, protecting a live arm like that, you know that that's the right thing to do as well. And yeah, I am drinking the Kool Aid because there's just you know what it is, Sam. What I really think it is, I think the you know how they always say you go from a player's manager to a disciplinarian or a disciplinarian to a player's manager, you have to change things radically. Brody is the quintessential opposite of Sandy. Brody is aggressive, I think a tad bit reckless maybe. I think that's why Omar's there and Barrett are there to help maybe moderate him a little bit, but Sandy was very conservative, always had to, you know, wait wait everything out, try to win the trade. That's what we heard for years. Brody's like, "You know what? I'm going to do shit. I'm just going to do shit to make this team better." And it's at least from my perspective, it's so refreshing that I think it's that maybe even a little bit more than the actual moves that are being made that have me so energized. Yeah, I, I, uh, I have to concur with you. I mean, I'm, I'm still personally, you know, in kind of an incomplete grading situation with it, but um, I'm just, I, I'm I'm not ready to completely react one way or the other, but I do like the fact that he's got everybody talking about the New York Mets. And, and going with that, um, uh, you know, writing, if we're continuing to compare and contrast uh, between Sandy, it did seem that Sandy didn't completely understand how to rev up the buzz. You know, you were talking earlier how low-key he was, and I, I was thinking about, about that, that, that that was both one of the things I liked about him and one of his weaknesses because sometimes he'd be so low key that all of a sudden he'd he'd hit you with like some really subtle joke and then all, then you you he'd have you laughing it up um, but he didn't have everybody talking about the Mets like this Mike and uh, there's still a lot to to be seen as to what really just occurred and wh- whether anything is actually going to come to fruition from it but people all week have been talking about the Mets and in good, positive fashion. You're talking, and Sandy Alderson, you're talking about an old school executive, very methodical in what he did. He was very cerebral, uh, but definitely old school. And in Brody Van Wagenen, you're talking about a former agent, a salesman, somebody who thrives in in public and in public speaking and doing it effectively and he's young and he's energetic but like I said uh, perhaps before the show he's still working within the same parameters and limitations that Sandy Alderson was there's some things that just haven't changed he's just packaging it differently and again you know there's something to be said for winning the off season which he's definitely doing. But where does that get you in the standings once the season starts? Uh, We need to do more. And and if they want to stay true to their word, like I said, I I mentioned the tweet they put out on the 11th, we will be relentless, et cetera, et cetera, in our pursuit of greatness. Well, that's words, not action. And and their limitations will dictate their actions. And, And they are for the most part. 
you know, we the Mariners and, and Mets, they did each other a favor. By exchanging that money, you know, we had it up to, and I'm putting my hand over my head with Bruce and and and, and Swarzak, and they were dying to get them get rid of Cano's money, so we swapped that out, and we basically got a relief pitcher for prospects. That's what it boils down to, and, and that's all really he's done this thus far, with the exception of signing Familia. It's a lot of talk. But talk is cheap, you know. And at this point, I want results. And if he has this short-term plan, well, let's see it. I don't want to hear it, and I'm not bashing him. I'm just being pragmatic about the situation. I'm just not being sold. I'm not whipping out my wallet and buying into this just yet. I've seen this far too many times before throughout baseball, not just the Mets. I'm not picking on them. And I'll take you back to their money situation, something that they they never talk about. I'll reiterate that in 2015, they renegotiated their remaining final $700 million of debt from the Madoff implosion and, and recovery. Two more years to go. They still owe uh, $280 million. It's going to cost them on average $140 million more this season and $140 million next season. That's where they are. That's the reality of the situation. That's why we're not going to get anything, you know, eye-popping. That's why there'll be no Machado. There'll be no Harper. There'll be none of that. But if they can swing this deal for Real Muto, it'll improve the offense dramatically. Because, Sam, you mentioned it, you know, June was disastrous and ruinous for this team. Most of May, likewise. And why? Let's go back. They lost their three, four, and five hitters. Not so much that the bullpen failed the starters, because had the Mets just scored one run or two more runs a game per start for Jacob DeGrom, he could have possibly went 30-0. and 0. Offense. We need offense. And if there is a short-term plan, swing this deal, because he's controllable, and it's within their money range. But money is still an issue. And aside from that, so is the money they still owe on City Field, which about, according to Forbes, I wrote this about a month ago at this point, according to Forbes, a tiny bit over one-third of their stadium revenue goes towards paying for City Field. So the $140 million in debt that they still owe this year and next year, you know, that's what's robbing, that's what's robbing, you know, salary and, and payroll. And we still have two more years of that. So swing this deal. Be creative. But do it. Don't talk. I've heard talk from too many people. And, again, this guy's an agent. He's a salesman. He knows how to package words and get people to buy in. None of this should be taken as criticism. Just taking it at face value. Let the results speak for themselves. But I refuse to get hyped on December 13th. But I, as, as Rich pointed out, I love the behind-the-scenes moves, like hiring Elaine Baird. And he hired Jared Banner away from the Red Sox as well. And they hired their former AAA manager away as well. Those moves I love, and those moves are addressing the future, and Omar Minaya is a part of that. 
you know, so he's doing, as far as I'm concerned, an excellent job as far as revamping our minor league structure. I'd like him to go even further and revisit all his managers and coaches from rookie league on up. You know, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. I love the behind-the-scenes work he's doing. But as far as the major league club, let the results speak for themselves. And until something happens, I'm not going to get, you know, crazy about scuttlebutt and rumors and whatnot. It's feasible, and I think the real Mudo trade is feasible, uh, and it would be smart. But don't expect, again, these big budget items uh, to happen because they're just not. We're not prepared for that for another two years. And prepare, be prepared to do a lot of complaining about Todd Frazier this year. <laughs> the end. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, and you do see that pop up a lot. Everybody's talking about the fact that they can't make these free agent trades, so they have to get creative. And it does seem like Brody is doing that within the, the realms of what the, the Wilpons have, have set. So, you know, a lot of people are obviously still frustrated over that, Rich, and, and you see that pop up from time to time. Howard Medgill, uh is, is somebody who is, is a, an expert on the, the uh, Madoff information. Um, what, you know, you, you obviously, you're looking at it and saying, I, I, I like the creativity that, that's going around. But, like, when you consider what Mike just said, about how they're still two to three years off from possibly not looking like the Wilpons anymore, or at least the Wilpons post-Madoff. Two years away. Right. 2019, 2020. Exactly. 21, they're fine. They'll be away. They'll have resolved all of that. So we're talking about two firm, definitive, planned years. You know what I mean? They have stability with regards to that. So the more people that populate the upper deck, that's where their revenue, that's where their ability to spend will come from, there and only there. Exactly. Um, and, and, I mean, it, you know, we, we were talking about it at some point at the end of the season that we were kind of, and this is before Wagon came aboard, um, we were done bashing the Wilpons, and we were kind of ready to to give them some credit when where they deserve the credit. And also, you know, I think I think that we're kind of just we don't want to play the same the same uh, uh, part of the vinyl anymore, Rich. Uh, you know, so is, is that do you think a lot of maybe like some of your optimism also has to do with having that type of mindset on on you? Is that this this is where we are? You're not going to have have the you know Rob Manfred try to force him out like they they tried to force out Frank McCord. So let's just ride out the the storm and and hope you know we can have another 2015 along the way and they'll be better on the other end of it. What do you where, where are you with that, Rich? Oh, I'm I'm completely aligned. You know when you think about the Robinson Cano deal that went down and the money the way the money worked out the way the money worked out the amount of money coming back to the Mets kept it cost neutral for two years. Like it wasn't fifty million, it was twenty million. So it was enough to keep it cost neutral for a couple of years. Now in the out years of Cano's contract, uh, remaining contract three, four and five, 
the Mets are going to be, you know, they're going to owe more than they had coming back. It won't be cost neutral anymore. But to Mike's point, clearly this move was made as are a lot of moves or non-moves with an eye to finances. There's no question, absolutely no question, that they want to be cost-neutral this year in general. And so where my head is with that, Sam, is basically what you said. I mean, to me, I accept it. Like, I accept it, and I think they could win regardless. Like you just said, 2015, they were in the same situation financially, and it was actually the beginning of the phase that Mike just talked about. And they found a way to sneak into the World Series. So I believe they could do that again. And when people talk about, I mean, I laugh every time I look at Twitter, every time. And I see, don't do this, do this, and sign Machado. Don't do this, do this, and sign Harper. They're not doing either of those. It's laughable. And, and you think about why do people even, why do they waste the energy it takes to type that? The Mets will never sign a Machado. They will never sign a Harper. It doesn't matter if you clear off Lagaris' money, clear off this one's money. They're not doing it. They're not giving somebody a 10-year contract for $400 million or whatever the hell Harper's going to get, Machado's going to get. So my philosophy is they've done it. They could do it again while they're you know under the financial constraints, get to the World Series. That could happen. And I think you can. Like, I, I – I, I, you don't need to necessarily shop in the Harper store and the Machado store to get to the World Series. You don't have to. And so, you know, and so I, I think I've accepted the fact that they're not going to shop there at least for a couple more years. And I think all that said, with proper creativity, some good baseball analysis and good insight, I think they can win despite it. So, yeah, that's where my head is. It's more just accepting it and trying to make it work with that kind of like hanging over the team, and I think they can. I agree with you. You know, I've always said, like, you look back when they did have the Madoff money, they weren't spending it wisely. And, Mike, we, we've been saying that we're hoping, and, and there might be some signs of it coming forward, that Jeff Wilpon is growing in his executive role. Uh yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll grant them that. Look, the ultimate defense of the Wilpons is the old what if. What what if David Wright, Cespedes, had remained healthy and Jay Bruce put up the numbers that he put up in Cincinnati? This conversation would be very different today. That's the ultimate defense of the Wilpons, I think. You know, what have what what if those three had remained healthy? Uh, so that being said, yeah, Jeff has grown. Uh, maybe his rate, <laughs> uh, you know, his rate of knowledge is great satisfaction, but uh, he's learning. Uh, well, I, I think, I think BBW is a smart guy when it comes to finances, like, like Rich pointed out, he's going to, He's going to do things that are somewhat cost-effective. Don't forget, Sandy Alderson was brought here uh, just to keep them afloat, to keep them manageable, to keep them uh, from being a laughing stock while the world pumps figured out their, you know, finances. Uh, he was brought here and given a wholly different mission statement. We're we're almost, you know, out of it. We're on the other side of it for sure. So he has a different mission statement, and yeah, Jeff, uh, Jeff is flexing now uh, in his capacity, 
this is his hire. You know, when they when they signed Alderson, that should have been Jeff's first hire, but it didn't work out that way because of the implosion. Uh, and Sandy Alderson, I think, was more pushed upon by the commissioner's office than anything else. Uh, but it saved them from having to continue to negotiate that fruitless search for a GM that they were, you know, perpetrating back then. Uh, I digress. It's just, you know, learning. He's learning on the job. You can't help but learn on the job, I don't think. I, I think you can't help but get better at this the longer you do it. Uh, so maybe there's something to that, Sam. I hope so. But I, I believe BBW is a, a smart man. Uh, and, you know, I'll just go back to saying, you know, talking creativity is one thing. You know, executing it is another. Show me. That's all. And it's not a criticism. I'm behind them. Um, Rich, Random digression, I'd like you to speculate on why I no longer follow Joel Sherman because he popped up in my who to follow. And I'm like, why don't I follow Joel Sherman? (laughs) What do you think he did to me? Because he (laughs) says things like – Nobody, you know, when this is bad because he does this and he, you know, ties his shoes the wrong way. And it's like, come on, man. You know what I mean? It's just, I, mean, I think that's what it is, Sam. That would be my, uh, <laughs> he, he goes out. I also the, don't follow Jeff Passan, apparently. Yeah, I, I follow him. I, I, he doesn't, he's neutral to me one way or the other. I don't, I don't really, sometimes he has a good insight here or there. Um, it it was interesting to watch these guys kind of stumble over each other, though. You know, they were, they were uh, this one reported first, but it's not really happening. And the J.A. Happ thing with the Yankees, he signed. No, he isn't. I tweeted that too early. He might be signed. You know, and it, it was it's, it's kind of interesting to watch that go down. Um, but again, they're doing the same thing we're doing. You know, if you're if baseball's in your blood, the second week of December every year, whether you're a fan or a reporter, or whatever. Um, you're locked in. They're trying to beat each other to the story. You know, we understand that. And, and it's just, it's a fun time. I mean, it, it, it stops being fun when misinformation gets out there. And, and I think we've all kind of been saturated on the JT real Muto thing. I think we're at a point with that one where it's, it's just overdone now. It's like either they're, are they playing the media? Are they saying, well, we're in on Grandal, we might be on these other people, you know, as a way to play the media to get the Marlins to drop the price, or the Marlins playing the Mets by saying we could trade him to the Phillies or the Dodgers? Who knows? And it, it was, I think that's the other side of it, is all this speculation was fun, but I think we're almost at the point now where, like Mike said, it's time to either put up or shut up, and it, the speculation is getting old at this point. At least it is to me. Well, do you think all this hot stuff is actually, you know, motivating people to pick up the phone and subscribe to season tickets or plan at this very moment? That's what this is all about. I I think so, Mike. I'll tell you why. Yeah, I think so, and I'll tell you you why. Because what fans don't want to do, right, is most fans don't want to plunk down money for season tickets when the team is rebuilding, for any team, not just the Mets. And so – the message the Mets have sent, and my God, have they said it enough, right? The message the Mets have sent, we're all in, 
you know, we're, we're going for it this year. This wasn't our, our last move. We're going to keep going. We intend to win this year, and, and we intend to win on a sustainable basis. So clearly what they're doing has that intent, and I do think some people are buying into it. I, that's my guess. What about yours? What do you think? What if I said this to you? What if I said this past season was 1983? Yep. Next year can either be 1984 or next year can either be 1993. <laughs> Tell me I'm oh, wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Oh, One my. bad decision. Oh, you gave me a chill. Like my body just had a chill when you said 1993, the thought of that. Oof. Okay, we're in that position. We're it's in our, our second year. <laughs> we just came off of 1983. Next year can either be 1984. Next year can either be 92, 93. The only Good thing point. that I will I will say about about this though is the fact that 2017, 2016 wasn't 1981. And 2017 wasn't 1982. You know, it's just, it's a completely different timeline. You know what I mean? But I, I well, hear where, where you're talking, coming with it. I'm, I'm just talking a, a matter of condition. That's all. You know, because 72 wasn't 69 and 76 wasn't 73. That's true. <laughs> you know, it's just a matter of 2015 turned into more of a 73. No, that was a good team. 2015 was a good team. You know, once they made that deal, and several deals. Let's let's you know, let's go beyond the Cespedes deal. Uh, it, it was just a good a good trade that went to the Exactly. So it, it was you know it was a good season for them, and, and a good strong finish. And I I'd put it above seventy three. Seventy three was, you know, that was unreal. Uh, similar circumstances, you know, you might say the favorite handed the division to them uh, in both seasons, but uh, I'll, I'll put 2015 over 73, I think. Am I wrong, Rich? Not at all. No, I don't think you're wrong at all. Uh, well, let's let's go let's go down the memory lane real quick uh, with with that as well. Do you guys remember the fever pitch of how pissed off this fan base was on July 11th? Repeat that? No, no. I said, and Rich, you can take it first since I, I cut you off before. But, but um, do you guys remember, like, in 2015, the fever pitch of how pissed off this fan base was on July 11th? I, you know, I don't remember oh, yeah. the date in specific, Sam, but, I, but I'll tell you that I think what you're driving at is that was during the, 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 the period where they could not score. And they had John Mayberry yes. Jr. Yes. batting cleanup and all that kind of stuff, and they were pitching well and not scoring. And the fever Darryl pitch of um, <laughs> right. That's right, and that's when um, yeah, right. That that's when they were going through that, and Sandy talked about Panic City and all that stuff. Yeah, no, but it's just crazy as we're talking about about all the how everything came to fruition. I mean, it, it was basically like, you know, because of the way that the team started and how they had been, uh, uh, you know, the years leading up to that, that start, 
we were just we were just ready to win. Uh, we were always ready to win, but at that moment we were like, all right, it's here. Why are you guys messing it up so badly? You know, you guys are doing like we we always have to. You know, we don't want to count our chickens before they hatch, but this is just atrocious. And the, I, I just remember as the offense kept churning out terrible terrible losses after terrible losses, and of course, you know, it was the infamous Clayton Kershaw game where John Mayberry Jr. and um, somebody help me. It was John Mayberry Jr. and who else was Eric in the Campbell, middle of there? <laughs> oh, my God, it was Campbell. It was totally Campbell. <laughs> but, like, that was really, that was really, you know, why is Conforto not up here? And and then all of a sudden, like, you know, what are you, what, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? You're going to squander – your your the first opportunity you've had in years, and then all right, Juan Uribe, Kelly Johnson, these are good veteran moves. Great, you brought up Conforto. Great, um, but although Conforto, I think, was before the Juan Uribe and Kelly Johnson, and kind of started the the process of getting the fan base to, to quiet down a little bit. But it, it's just like when looking back on it, and then that weekend, it it's so funny how. Uh, Mike, you know, when you're you're looking back on the emotions of that entire stretch, it felt like when when everything came together that weekend and we swept the Nationals to tie for first place, there wasn't a feeling that the Mets were going to mess this up. There was an actual feeling like we did it, and now we're going to hold on, and now we just got to keep on pushing and keep on moving forward, and they did. And 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 that's that's probably why. Even, you know, you guys went through 1973, but it's those types of feelings of, of why it all comes together to quite possibly be a, a more important season for you guys uh, uh, than 1973, which is still talked about so, so magnificently by, by older Mets fans. In its own little way, 73 was validation of 69. Uh, people, you know, expected them to do something more entering 1970 in the years, you know, moving forward. Whereas 2015, you know, me personally, you can't be, you can't be disappointed with what you don't expect. Uh, So that's why I think 2015 was such a great story. The story around the whole season uh, to me is great. You know, regardless that we lost the world series. I, I, I just, it was a great story to me. Uh, Rich, Rich, if you want to to wrap up the the 2015 remembrance uh, segment, <laughs> yeah, it, oh, we got I, I know what you I mean. Know. Is that my fault? <laughs> um, the I know what you mean, Sam, about the the uh, the comparison between the two because in '73 they had a lot of injuries, they weren't scoring. '15 they weren't scoring, had a lot of injuries. Um, difference obviously is in. In 15, at the trade deadline, they brought in a megastar. 73 did not do that. 73 just got their own guys back. Um, but in both cases, to your point about similarity, in both cases, they had an incredible run down the stretch. And um, obviously in 73, they, they eked their way in on, on what was the last day of the season. In 15, they just, I don't know what they did, but they found the fountain of youth and they blew everybody out and coasted, you know, most of September. Um but 
I think what Mike says is right. You know, when they won in 69, everybody said, well, you have to validate that now. You have to validate and go out and and be competitive. Everybody said there was a fluke. You know, man lands on the moon and the Mets win the World Series. The whole thing's a big fluke. And so they were looking for some validation of what had happened four years prior. And in 15, it, it seemed like a plan coming together. You know, you saw them bring up Harvey, bring up Wheeler, then get better. You know, the back half of 14 was really good, and then it seemed like a culmination. So, yeah, I could see the comparisons. Yeah, and uh, I I also have fond memories of 2016. They were uh, under 500 by two games when I broke my collarbone early Friday morning, and I believe it was like the 17th or 18th of August. They were going into the into San Francisco, uh, who they were behind in the wild card. And if you're talking about a validation, uh, 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 you know, you're talking about how seven, 1973 was validation for, for 1969. Well, 2016, to an extent, was validation for 2015. Unfortunately, we weren't able to make it past wild card game but there was still, with that stretch run, while I was completely, uh, uh, you know, swung up on my left side, um, it was just, I, I, I have as many fond memories of 2016 in, in many ways in that stretch run. And it, it, it was almost even more remarkable because of Seth Lugo and Robert Gazelman. And, and, you know, it wasn't, you know, in 2015, by the time that the stretch was happening, all the injured, injured players were coming back. Whereas in 2016, they had to do that, Rich. I'll start with you on this one. They had to do that with everybody still on the bench, everybody still on, on, on the, the injured reserve. Right. What, they started that run. You're exactly right. They started that run in San Francisco, if you remember. They had lost the Friday game. They won on Saturday. Then they won on Sunday night with Cespedes hitting a home run off of um, the right-hander there's play football, Samarja. And they won two to nothing on a two-run Cespedes home run, Syndergaard over Samarja. And so, but at that point, Cabrera had been out. They were playing with Reyes, who was supposed to be a fill-in, and Reyes was playing every day. You still had the Eric Campbells of the world making spot starts. So you're right. They, it was an unlikely run because in the beginning of it, until, until September essentially, they did it with guys like Eric Campbell. They did it with Reyes, and they did it with the emergence of, of Lugo and, and Gesellman, guys who, as we said earlier in the podcast, we hadn't heard of going to spring training of 16. So um, it was a bit unlikely and it was a hell of a run that you're, you're absolutely right, Sam. That was a fun late August and December into September. Remember that series against the Marlins at, at city in very late August when Cespedes had a walk off, they went three out of four. If you remember DeGrom hurt his arm in that series and we never saw him again in 16. Um, He started one of those games. Remember he, they showed him in the, he was waving the trainer over. We never saw DeGrom again after that. But it was a it was a great run. It was an unlikely one because they did it with a lot of bench pieces. So it's a it's a good call on your part. And I'd also like to mention that they had at least like five teams ahead of them, and it all perfectly fell into place. The Card- and 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 the, they had to face the Giants who were ahead of them. They had to face the Cardinals right after the Giants who were ahead of them, and they had to face the Marlins who were ahead of them. And they nicked each and every one of them off, Mike, one by one by one. Mm. 
last thing I'll say about 1516 is uh, that was, to me, a bookend of Omar Minaya's work. A lot of those guys started in the Mets organization when he was still general manager. And I understood his plan, his win-now plan and his win-in-the-future plan. He almost pulled it off if his lieutenants didn't blow it for him. Uh, and they didn't just totally botch the Willie Randolph fiasco. Uh, he almost pulled it off. Well, and of course, he got to throw Madoff in there. But uh, he almost pulled it off. And, and to me, that revisionist history should go back and say, hmm, look how much Omar and I have played in that 2015-16 uh, playoff run. And now, you know, it's, we're about to see what Sandy Alderson was made of. It's, it, it's really interesting, Rich, that, you know, and it's obviously it makes perfect sense that, that it's all a fluid situation. It's kind of the same thing you could say in politics. You don't kind of necessarily see the fruitions of, of, of uh, people's plans and, and the, the policies that they've set out until two to three years even after they're gone. Um, but you know, that, that, that is definitely something that we're about to see. And, and I think that's one of the things that it was weird at the end of last season because, and we've talked about this before, how the, you, you, you both saw uh, some of the talent that, that Sandy Alderson had brought aboard, especially like when, when it comes to Brandon Nimmo being the first pick he ever made. Uh, but, but then, you know, obviously the play, the, the, Three run, the you know take a couple walks and then hit a three run home run, segued out and then you saw a little bit more small ball coming coming to fruition. But it was a lot of the same players uh, uh, that Sandy Alderson had cultivated uh, coming together for that different type of approach now. But but yeah no you know wherever wherever you want to take uh, I have no specific question. I just that's that's basically that's my observation of, of how this entire thing works. Well, it, it, you're, you know what? You're right in the sense of we saw Omar's work, you know, kind of come to fruition. Um, and around, will we see Sandy's, you know, legacy help the Mets in, in 1920, hopefully? Maybe, maybe not. You know, <laughs> with the way Brody's moving people around, a lot some of these people may not be here. And um, so I think it, it's TBD. It certainly could happen. But Brody is, is you know, because take, take one example right here. Uh, one of the things Sandy did, he brought Jay Bruce in one time, then he brought him back. Well, Jay Bruce is gone, you know. And and Brody may do the same thing. If he does trade a Nemo, if he does trade a Rosario, whatever. So whether we have a chance to see the delayed effect of Sandy or not, I think is a function of to what degree Brody overhauls the roster. It's a great point, and he got rid of Anthony Swarzak, uh, who could, you know, you could have made an argument that that was still a, a valuable bullpen piece, but he kind of pressed the reset button with that one, Mike. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, I, I'm more than happy to, you know, uh, part with both Bruce and, and, and Swarzak, trust me. Uh, I think it was a very fair trade. If we're going to say anything about the Cano-Diaz deal, it, I think it was there, uh, and it satisfied both parties. Uh, other than that, you know, uh, again, I'm not doing cartwheels over a 36-year-old uh, because now that he's off PEDs, we potentially face 
a precipitous decline. That's a fear of mine. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not trying to predict it. I'm just saying that's a fear somewhere in the back of my mind. Uh, otherwise, I'm fine. You know, let the short-term plan be what it is. Uh, I'm thrilled about the long-term plan with some of the with the hires that he's made. So, for a little uh, visual tag-along, uh, if everybody go to the New York Mets uh, uh, Twitter page, you can take a look at Star Wars Night. And in the photo, guys, uh, this is ridiculous. On Saturday, May 25th, which is the anniversary of when Star Wars came out, I'm a little bit of a Star Wars nerd, um, at least from the cinematic perspective. I really don't read any of the books or whatever. But they have a promo with Obi-Wan Kenobi. And it's Robinson Cano in the Obi-Wan Kenobi robe wearing his number 24. That's, uh, I, I, I don't know what to, to say about this, Rich. I'm not sure if you've seen it yet. <laughs> oh, I, I it's saw gonna, it. It's going to be a bobblehead. Oh, yeah. That actually, they came out with that, I think, the day after the trade was final because I had a family gathering last weekend and we <laughs> talked about it. We talked about it last weekend that, that it had gone out that they're going to do – Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, and I personally think it's hysterical. I, I, <laughs> the Mets PR department and their social media people, whoever comes up with this stuff, they they have their ups and downs. This is an up as far as I'm concerned. I think it's hysterical. <laughs> I, I love it. Well, I, 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 you know, it's been a slow process, but their their uh, online presence, their social media campaigns, uh, and their their marketing in general excuse me, their marketing in general has gotten substantially better over the last basically three to four years since they started winning, Mike. Well, if we're going to go there, I, I will definitely give them all the credit in the world for, you know, T-shirt Friday giveaways. I think some of those T-shirts are pretty damn good. Uh, can we bring up Nelson Figueroa? Yeah. Yes, right? yes. Let's, let's discuss it. You guys might know some more information, but it just sounds like as far as, as, far as uh, I've heard, that Todd Zeal is taking over the main role next to Gary Apple or whoever ends up doing the the, the uh, main announcing of the of the post game, but but he it hasn't been announced as to exactly where Figueroa hasn't been fired, but he's going somewhere else. Rich, if you want to carry it from there, I, I was shocked. Um, I was flipping through Twitter out at my meeting, and I when I saw that. I was literally shocked because I'm a huge Bobby Ojeda fan, a huge. I, I thought he told it like it was, um, you know, when he was angry at the team, he let everybody know about it. And obviously that's why he doesn't have a job anymore, right? And then Nelson came along in 2015. In the beginning, it seemed like he was saying, oh, I'm not going to happen to me. You know, he was towing the company line. Later in 15, 16, 17, he started to really give good analysis, sort of irrespective of, of, of whom he pissed off. And I thought he had really become almost as good as Bobby O. And, and for me to say that, because I like Bobby O so much, and now Zeal, it's like, what the hell happened here? Who, who did Nelson piss off? Because he does a damn good job. And... Um, and Zeal, I mean, he's okay, but what did I read when I, when I was out there? What did I read? I said, ah, it said, Wilpon favorite Todd Zeal will now be the uh, the analyst working with Gary Apple. Well, there you have it. 
Um, they took care of their guy. For some reason, he's their guy, and, and Figueroa must have given them uh, the excuse they were looking for. I don't know, Mike, if you've heard more than I have, but all I've heard is that the Wilpons love Zeal. He now has a job, and Figueroa will be somewhere else. That's all I've heard. Uh, I can't add much more to what you said. Uh, I'm in lockstep with you. Either he really pissed somebody off, or this was about money. Because he definitely grew into the role. Uh, he's far superior to, well, let's just say today than he was on day one. Uh, he, he he won me over, but, yeah, uh, Bobby Ojeda served the role uh, in, in a supreme manner. Uh, but I definitely like Figgy. So what gives, you know, because the ultimate judge, I mean, if they're so fearful of criticism, well, they're going to have to address Ron Darling and Keith Hernandez. Because those are the two big biggest critics that they have. So, you know, I'm not so sure it's because uh, Figgy perhaps, you know, felt more comfortable these days about criticizing them. Maybe this was about money, you know, contractual stuff. From what I understand, he's still going to be part of the network on other shows. He's not out of the loop. He's just out of that role. Uh, Todd Zeal, I think they're just flip-flopping, actually, because Todd Zeal was on Baseball Night in New York or whatever that show's called. He's been on SNY this year, last year, uh, and he's zinged him once or twice as well. So I don't think he's going to shy away from criticism. Uh, I'd be interested to know exactly why why this went down. I'm sorry to see it. I'm not a big fan of Todd Zeal, never have been. Uh, And that goes back to... I guess John Olerud, <laughs> my resentment over that whole thing, <laughs> that whole, over that over the way that whole thing went down, you know. So, uh, unfortunately for Tatio, I've never been a fan of his. I, you know, um, I'm okay. I watch him. I listen. You know, I, I don't think he's a fool by any stretch of the imagination. I respect him. I have no dislike for him. I've just never been a fan of his. That's all. But this, this, the timing of it, I guess, with all the, you know, pom pom waving going on with the winter meetings and whatnot, that this news, uh, you know, is like, a, is like a hockey stick in the spokes, huh? It really is. It's like it came out of nowhere, and it's during the winter meetings this happens, and obviously when the, when the focus is on, on rosters and stuff. And who the hell saw this coming? Um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. And, and hopefully Nellie has a prominent role, you know, if they flip-flop and you could say that they're flip-flopping to keep things fresh and exciting. All right. I get that. You know, Nellie will take over on baseball night, in New York and, and zeal will be on the pre and post. All right. If you want to move your chess pieces around and give them different jobs and, you know, to keep things fresh and exciting, I, I could sort of get that. I really hope though, that, that they, they didn't do to figure out what they did to, to Ojeda, which is they got sick of the, you know, the, um, the brutal honesty, and decided to, to mute him a little bit. I really hope that's not what happened. Bobby, well, he he was just that. He was brutal. He was brutally honest. It was great. It was fantastic. He was great. And and uh, I met him that night uh, of his last his last uh, uh, of of the the last night that he was employed with S and Y on television. I met him coming. He came into Two Boots to grab some pizza. He was a little inebriated, but not in a belligerent way at all. It was it was a fun interaction. And he tried to pay for his pizza, and I was like, dude, you don't have to pay for anything ever again in this world in this city. <laughs> he was like, come on. Um, but I. Uh, 
Yeah, you know, if I I really haven't been able to tune into Baseball Night in New York, so I I've only seen Todd Zeal a couple of times. I haven't really been able to tune into the pregame as much uh, lately. Um, and I, I, I thought, I mean, they extended it an hour, but even with, you know, I know Nelson Figueroa was there and I just thought some of, some of the, it was clear that they didn't necessarily need an hour and they were, they had so much filler one way or the other with like, you know, Nelson Figueroa sings a Frank Sinatra song. It's like, what are you guys doing? Talk about baseball. Um, but yeah, no, it, I, I, I do think that Figueroa, generally speaking, whether it's as a pitcher or whether it's as a commentator, Rich, has gotten a bad rap from, from the Mets, has gotten a bad break from the Mets. I always thought in 2009 he should have been the fifth starter. Yeah, and, and you know, he didn't leave on good terms. He, you know, he said a few things out the door. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he, he was kind of, you know, kind of, kind of seemed angry and bitter, which I, I guess, look, if you're released and you feel like you saw the talent, it's, it might be hard not to express your frustration and um but it seemed like he was back clearly back in the good graces of the organization doing a good job immaculately dressed i might add i mean my god that guy could dress with his ties and his pocket squares and all that (laughs) so uh just throwing that in there um but but now he's gone well he's not gone you know again like mike said earlier let's see the role he has if he's on baseball night and he's able to mix it up, that, that's a pretty funny show, by the way. They, those guys have a lot of fun with that. It's on for a half an hour. The pregame's on a half an hour these days, and they had it for an hour. I think they, they trimmed it back this year. And um, and and he has just as prominent a role, just on a different format than the pre and post, to get Zeal's voice in there. And who knows? I'll be the starry-eyed optimist and say that the people who run SNY, Gowdy, he said, look, let's do, let's do this for our fans. Let's give them a fresh voice. Let's see how this works out. We love you, Nelly. We're just going to put you on, on this show instead of this one. Well, you know, we're keep, let's just go with the starry-eyed optimism and say they did this for the best of intentions. Nobody's mad at anybody. And probably not true, by the way. But, but, that's, um, but you know, maybe that's the case. I don't know. Did, did Figueroa ever overlap? Do they ever what, Mike? Did they ever, did their careers with the Mets ever overlap, Figgy and Zeal? No, right? No, they did. Yeah, they were. They, they both did. Were on. Yeah, they no. did. Right? No, 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 no. No, Zeal retired. Zeal retired in two thousand four, and Figgy uh, was met in two thousand eight. Right. So uh, to go along with and, that, and I remember month. in like two thousand eight, two thousand eight, he got starts because everybody was injured. But I, you know, it, it was a big deal because he was a Queens boy. His father was a huge Mets fan. His his start were, and I, I forget all the details about it, but but it was it. There was something momentous about his, and maybe it was it. it, it he had uh, you know been a, a minor leaguer for so long, and he finally got his his major league win. Which can you do? You remember, Mike? Do you remember anything? One or one or the other? Do you remember anything about the specifics about his first start with the Mets in two thousand eight? I do. If I could jump in, um, he had been in the major leagues with Texas and a, maybe another team or two, so he had a few wins here and there. You know, journeyman, and then he ended up in Korea, I believe, and was in Korea for a couple of years, and came back. And I I remember this because I went to the game the next day. He started a Friday night game in April against the Brewers. 
and um, and there was all this talk. You know, Brooklyn-born Nelson Figueroa. He's I think at the time he was well. You can do the math in our heads. He was 34 because he's 44 now. So um, he was 34 years old, hadn't been in the major leagues in several years. You know, it's sort of been an exile in Korea, pitching over there. And here he was back pitching for his beloved New York Mets. Like you said, his dad's a Mets fan. He was a Mets fan growing up. And it was this wonderful story. And he went out there, and if, geez, I wish I had the stats in front of me, but I believe he threw seven innings of one or two run ball, got the win. I think he also had a base hit in that game. And it was just a really feel-good story. And I remember this the most. He walked off the mound. He was taken out. Willie took him out. And he walked off the mound with his glove, like, over his face. And we're like, okay, whatever. And then after the game, when they talked to him in the, cl- in, the, uh, in the clubhouse, he said he put his glove over his face because he was bawling like a baby. Those are exact words. He said he was bawling like a baby walking off the field because he can't believe he had just pitched at Shea for the Mets in front of his family and it was like the best thing that ever happened to him. I, I wish I could play back that interview, but it was the most – if you didn't feel good after that, you couldn't feel good. I'm going to try to find his stat line uh, as uh, as fast as I, I possibly can, but I do know that his father has a brick out there, and it has the date that he pitched. And he said that it, it says Nelson Figueroa Sr., uh, Mets fan for life, like, when he, when uh, my son pitched, I died and went to heaven. And I'm trying to see. I, I'm sure I can actually pull up a picture of the uh, of the brick to see if I can I can find that. But I'm trying to also find his the 2008 game. Let's see if I can. I'll just have to go straight to schedule and results and wherever I see W for Nelson. But I'll. I'll while I pull this stuff up, I'll pass it over to you, Mike, um, to continue wherever you, you, you want to. Well, my my whole thing was that he was just from Brooklyn, so I just celebrated him for that and got behind him for that, and I was happy for him for that. But as far as, you know, 2008, everything outside of that disastrous end, you, you know, just is a, <laughs> a fog for me. I that's my overwhelming recollection of 2008, that disastrous end. And if you, I can't give beyond that when it comes to particulars, man. Try to put that out of so, my mind. 2009, no difference. All right, wait a second. So he got the win, Figueroa got the win on Friday, April 11th against Milwaukee. Was it that early, really? It was. Uh, it was cold. I remember that. I remember that. It was a cold game. All right, so this is the Mets are going five and four. Uh, Nelson Figueroa in this game, one and he he's one and zero. Oh. Um, he pitched six innings of two run ball in this game against Manny Parra, and he also a week later beat the Braves with John Smoltz on the mound. And and this is one of the reasons why like you know, I just never understood why he got. Yeah, I just never understood why he got such a bad rap in, in 2009. That I remember. Well, you know, it's easy. It, it would have been easy for anyone to get a bad rap in 2009, you know? Yeah. I mean, he only participated I hear that. in 16 games. He only participated in 16 games. So whatever 
opinions people drew of him. You know, you're talking about a very small sample size, uh, but obviously he's going to be remembered more for his work on SNY than he than he will be for his pitching as a man. Here it goes. So I found it. On 4-11-08, my son pitched for the Mets, and I died and went to heaven, and Figueroa Sr. And nice. I found this in I found this in a, a New York Times article talking about how uh, he's going to be rooting for his son when he comes back as a Philadelphia Philly. I'm still a Mets fan, don't get me wrong, but when he comes here, I'm rooting for him. <laughs> and I forgot about that everywhere. Everywhere that Nelson Figueroa has been, that's April 12, 2010, Nelson Figueroa was a Philadelphia Philly. Well, we are at the tail end of our podcast, ladies and gentlemen, and I'll pass this over uh, first to you, Rich, before we go to our final word. Is there anything else we should cover? Let's see. I I wanted to make sure we talked about Nelson Figueroa, so Mike, good call on that. We covered winter meetings. We covered, you know, the, the various moves. Um, no, I think I think that's really, really, I think we covered it all, right? Anything else going on in baseball? Oh, w- one thing, just I can't imagine you guys having a negative opinion of this, but I'll throw it out. Um, from what I understand, Sunday night baseball will now start at 7 instead of 8, which yes. isn't that 20, 20 years too late. My God. Yeah. My God, though. Yeah, but what, what, what is this, though? What, what, are, what are we doing here? I know, I know. It's a major league baseball. I know. I mean, and, and, and I, I had, but one of the one of the smartest things that I had ever seen thrown out about that, and and then I'll, I'll loop it over to you, Mike, was that if you want to do that, have two games, one as an East Coast game and one as a West Coast game. If you're not going to have one game at seven o'clock, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. You know, but when you're dealing with capitalists, that's what happens. That's what happens. When profit rules are all, that's what happens. You know, this is a smart move. Go to 7 o'clock. Good idea. Let's just leave it at that. I don't want to pick on them or digress. Uh, <laughs> did I have anything? Yeah, yeah. I mean, did I have anything else? Uh, I did, and it slipped me when you threw that at me. Uh, did it damn. have to do with the Edwin Encarnacion trade and how Jerry DePoto is – Having no. having a, a roulette is sitting at the roulette table right now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, oh man, I don't know what it was. So whatever. So all right. Well, uh, I guess yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Rich. This is not for combat. I just want to throw this in. I have to. So my flight back. Right, I was in California, but I connect through Vegas. So I'm in the Vegas airport. It's crawling with people with MLB jackets and so the winter meetings are, and they were just ending. And I will tell you, I was listening to these conversations between people who I think were just neutral. They were from MLB. They were talking about the Mets. Everybody was talking about the Mets and Brody Van Wagenen. So to the point we've been talking about earlier, the stuff he's doing, the Mets are now top of conversation. Whether or not that's a good or bad thing, I just thought I would share that because this is a baseball show. I was around all these people wearing the the people with uh, MLB backpacks and jackets and hoodies, and just being in their in their midst in the airport. They were talking about the New York Mets, and I thought it was great. Well, that's good marketing. That's good strategy, and you can chalk that up to BBW for creating that excitement, you know. But that's business acumen at work. Uh, something Slendy Alderson didn't provide, uh, and and for the moment, you know. <laughs> He's doing it with smoke and mirrors. He's really shaking those pom-poms great. 
greatly, you know. Uh, I did remember what I wanted to speak about. Uh, Lee Smith, Hall of Famer, I agree. Harold Baines, Hall of Famer, no, I completely disagree. Total digression. Agreed on both. So, Rich, what is your last word? Excitement. Um, it's something that we haven't had in a couple years since, you know, the 16 run, really. Um, the nice play at the end of last year wasn't really excitement. It was more hope because they were, they were you know, baked in the standings. But everything we've talked about, the marketing, the Brody Van Wagen, Mets being in the news, moving pieces around, aggressiveness, I, I think there's a renewed sense of excitement around the fan base. Um, not even necessarily optimism because some people are, are poo-pooing the moves, but the Mets are active. They're being talked about. People are interested. It's exciting. So my last word is excitement. Mike, follow through. That's it. Follow through. My last phrase I will go with a phrase, is all I want for Christmas. Now, we might not celebrate Christmas. I uh, personally am, am uh, of the Jewish background. Uh, but all I want for the holidays is action. Continue this momentum. It's one thing that people are talking about the Mets, but there should be a reason why they're talking about the Mets. I, and mind you, I, I don't want it to I – don't, I don't want the Mets to be doing – uh, what they, you know, what the 2012 Marlins did, and all of a sudden that talk about winning the off season. Um, I want the momentum that they had uh, with the with, with, with two, you know, the, with August and September to continue and to not stop that momentum uh, with this new GM, which is so far so good. You know, they, they we we were talking about excitement at the end of the, the season. And we're still talking about excitement. And with all the moves that he's complimented, you get some of the dead weight off of, off of there, even though we, we were just singing the praises of Jay Bruce over a year ago and that move. But it just wasn't going to work in what the Mets are trying to do going forward, the approach that they're trying to take. Uh, if Robinson Cano comes through, and we're always talking ifs, ifs, ifs with the New York Mets, but if they somehow figure out how to get Real Muto and – Robinson Cano is who he, we know he can be. With Brandon Nimmo at the top of that lineup, we could be really talking about a dangerous form uh, going on right here. And you've got Chili Davis uh, uh, coming aboard who has a good track record as a, a hitting coach. So there is a reason why Rich's uh, word is excitement, but there's also a reason why Mike is followed through. And so a lot of times we're talking about the, uh, the Mets giving their fans a, a Christmas present or a holiday present. And I remember the headline in 2000 was Mike Hampton uh, was the, the Christmas present for the New York Mets. Right before Christmas, they got Mike Hampton. And somehow, some way, without there being such negativity around either Syndergaard going to the Yankees or who Rosario uh, going to, to uh, the Marlins for JT Real Muto or whoever ends up getting sent over there, they they need to keep the momentum and the excitement going, and and they have to figure out somehow some way to depress some of of the the negativity that is just constantly following this this team, whether that's the the fan base uh, continuing to to bang the negative drum or whether it's it's you know it's what came first the chicken or the egg 
and it's the owners uh, getting that done. Um, it doesn't matter. They need to figure out something new, something refreshing outside of just making this Robinson Cano, Edwin Diaz deal. So, yeah, I, I'm, I think I am slightly a hybrid of both the excitement and the follow through. All I want for Christmas is action. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening in to a Metsian podcast. And there's only one way that we always end this after thanking Rich. Thank you, Rich. I appreciate thank it. Thank you, Sam. And Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, sir. So how do we always finish this, guys? There's only one way. All together. Ready? Let's. Let's go, go. Mets. 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 Let's go, Mets. Good night, everybody. Have a great one. Good night. Good night.